0: a hugely impressive CV. Thank you. We've seen a lot of candidates over the last few months and this is amongst the most impressive. Thanks. Project management is really my specialist area. I think you can see from my CV that I really do have a lot of experience with team leadership. There was just one thing on it and I know that Peter and Fiona are curious about it. As well, as we were preparing for the interview, we googled your name, and it comes up quite a few times, actually, that you've been convicted of crimes against humanity. What's that about? Well, I decided to leave that off the CV because I think that it's always best to be honest with people. Honest? Well, in
1: the sense that it's something that happened in the past, and it isn't really relevant anymore,
0: and I would really rather focus on the last two years.
1: So, what are the details?
0: Of the uh, what the crimes against humanity yes well, I was convicted about two years ago in The Hague of crimes against humanity in my absence, and well, that's about it, really. was this a genocide or something? It was a genocide, yes
1: uh, so how many people would have died
0: well, the u n reckons about fifteen thousand, but I think it was more like uh, twenty, maybe
1: thirty and what was your role?
0: Largely organisational. I was responsible for the transport and general administrative stuff. A lot of burials, obviously, had to be undertaken. And if you look at it purely in those terms, I was very successful. Did you try to stop the genocide at any stage? I did try to stop it at one stage, but ultimately it was just easier to go along with it. Yes, I'm just, uh, I'm just looking up against humanity here, and it defines it as murder, massacres, extermination, uh, human experimentation, kidnappings, unjust, imprisonment, slavery, and cannibalism. Guilty as charged. (laughs) And the sentence uh, for crimes against humanity was in your absence? Yes. Uh, I wasn't in court, and again, to be completely honest, it was, uh, 25 years.
1: And you're on the run now, are you? Yeah. Okay. I think we're all agreed that no.
0: won't be a problem. It's yeah. still a hugely impressive CV. Yes, it's definitely the best we've seen. Yes, I think we're, uh, we're all in agreement. So, welcome to the bank.
2: Well, pull up a chair. <laughs> that was Tracy Ullman with a um, interview as a sociopath. Okay, got a lot going on today, and um, this file is kind of a hot mess. But I'll try my best to get through it. Um, going to be talking about money. This is a very big crime scene going on, so I feel an obligation to cover it. Just so you're aware, if you haven't caught on yet, we are what it is called a fractional banking system. Okay. And um, what that means is that, let's say I go out and look for a house, and I decide that I want this house that costs $100,000, and then I go to get a loan from the bank. Well, the bank's going to run me through the coals and check my credit and do all kinds of stuff and treat me like dirt, <laughs> and then before they decide to give me that loan. So they approve the loan at the bank based on all the criteria they set up, all this stuff like credit ratings and all that. So they set all that stuff up, right? Well, then the bank says, oh, well, you've been approved for this loan. Here's your house. Here's the keys. Well, where did the bank get that money from? (laughs) It's called thin air, kids. Thin air. Okay, so pull up a chair. We're going to have a wild one today. Um, I'm going to be covering several things. Um, Labor unions um, and robbery that has to do with money in general um, because – the unions in this country started around the 1899s, okay, and um, we also have a lot of things about organized crime and money, and it's interesting to me they call it organized crime. <laughs> um, so, anyway, so, because unions in the 80s got weak, but what happened then? Well, Silicon Valley, right? Um i I went to work in Silicon Valley. Intel hired me and relocated me there in nineteen seventy nine <laughs> Imagine that right at the right at the brink of when the mafia was there. I really didn't know when I was suing Intel when they tried to steal from me that I was suing the mafia, but yeah, it makes sense now because the whole well, it was something else the way they treated me. It took five years, but I never let up. so <laughs> I have two modes you'll find one mode is I consistently put one foot in front of the other, no matter what. Things could be raining down around my head, and that one foot will keep moving, right? Or I move into what I call my bull in the china shop mode, where I will knock out every door and knock out anything to get going. So, yeah, um, because um, it's interesting all, how all these dates work, right? And um, I want to talk a little bit about first here, just because I don't want to zip around too much. Um, there was a thing I read across this week. um Called Manufac- I consider it manufacturing crazy, right? And I will give you a little bit of it, and then hopefully you will go and look further for yourself. A man named Ethan Walters, or Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S, he had a book called Crazy Like Us. And um, what the book is about is about how the United States has exported this idea that everybody's crazy, right? Because I got, they said that I had a chemical imbalance, and that's why I'm crippled. <laughs> but they came out last year and said, whoops! Nobody had a chemical imbalance. So, yeah, so how we export crazy around the world, and it's very interesting. I mean, I would call it pretty fascinating. So I would really suggest you look at Ethan Waters, W-A-T-T-E-R-S, and he has some interviews online, and his book is Crazy Like Us, okay? So um, because what happens is is that um, the United States manufactures most of these drugs, okay, and then the rest of the world... I believe, I don't know this, but I believe the rest of the world considers them safe, right? (laughs) Otherwise, how would they get to send them all around the world? But the FDA and the drug system here is as dirty as it can be, right? Um, So, um, because um, most of the advisors on the board of the FDA receive funds from the companies that they're reviewing, okay? Um, And the, the payments... Were re- disclosed in scholar- scholarly reports, but not by the FDA. So the FDA does not ask if anybody has gotten money or kickbacks, right? Yale University physician Robert Steinbrook, editor at large for jo- Journal of American Medical Association magazine called JAMA, told Science, the science magazine, that such payments are troubling. <laughs> It raises ethical concerns if the payments are not disclosed by the FDA when the advisor is sitting on one of the agency's panels. The FDA is not doing due diligence, Steinbrook said. While the FDA did not comment directly on the science investigation, an agency said that people serving on drug-approved advisory panels must disclose any prospective employer but not anticipated payments. Science reported the statement. The statement went on to say FDA also screens potential participants for relationships and situations that do not create a financial conflict of interest, but may create the appearance that a committee member lacks impartiality. <laughs> okay, uh, and then there was an investigation that examines big pharma payments to FDA. Well, it's all there in writing, kids. Just go take a look. Um, the whole system is rigged. We're in a mafia-run country. Okay, so, have a bit of news here. I don't know when this came out because working in an active crime scene can get a little complicated at times. But the LGBTQ freaks, they have... Now, I don't think the gay people are freaks, okay? I think the gay people got shoved out by the trans people, so let's be clear about that, okay? Um, so, they added a new letter. What's the new letter, you ask? E. E. The letter E. What does the letter E stand for, you ask? Eunuchs, E-U-N-U-C-H-S. What's a eunuch? Well, in their history books, they have eunuchs showing um, being serving the royal courts and stuff, eunuchs, okay? And a eunuch is a man or boy who has been castrated, especially in the past, one employed to guard the women's area, living area in an oriental court. I think what they're creating now with kids are eunuchs, but they're doing a different kind of a system because they always announce one thing and do something else, right? Because now everybody's being kind of chemically castrated by the low testosterone and all the things going on. So there's a lot, lot to unpack here. But So I looked at what does that Bible say about eunuchs? Matthew 19, 12. For there are eunuchs who have been made who have been so from birth and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven let the one who is able to receive this receive it so yeah they're saying that eunuchs have been made by men yes they're right now castrating children all over the country here with all this uh, gender reaffirmation stuff um been from birth yes they're flipping They're flipping these people in vitro. I'm real sure that the top people are all being flipped in the womb, but I'll have to get back to that later. But, yeah, they're making eunuchs, okay? They're castrating men, okay? (laughs) so Okay, now let's get to uh, gold. This week, when I was scanning around social media, uh, everybody, everybody is selling gold. (laughs) And they're all saying, This isn't financial advice. Check the... Check my description box below for a link. Get a hold of Jonathan. He'll tell you where to get the best deals on gold. But please, do your own due diligence. Yeah, they're all hawking gold. I wonder why that is, because they they hawk from one thing to the next, right? Okay, so why did I scroll past the gold part? Okay. um, Jeez, I scrolled all the way down. I don't know what I'm doing. Some warnings. Okay. Okay. I have so much data in this file. I... uh, I have financial data, how much this country owes, how much it's worth, how much they robbed. Okay, Um, so I don't know why I was back to gold back here, Uh, because I'm going to be talking more about gold. That's right. Okay, I found my place, so you can relax. I see these people sitting around drinking coffee while they're thinking, well, that's because they're highly edited stuff, because all I hear myself doing is clanking down coffee cups. (laughs) Okay, so here's a new sales pitch for gold, okay? I guess crypto seems like a bridge too far to try to push right now. (laughs) Okay, what they're saying is this. They're saying, you want to be secure? They're saying, China is buying all the gold. They say, BlackRock is buying all the gold. Well, I think we have a pretty serious disconnect in our minds, okay? If people are actually bragging that BlackRock is buying all the gold. Gee, wasn't BlackRock also buying all the, um, oh, I don't know, all the crypto? Um, So, yeah, so they're saying, oh, China's buying it, BlackRock's buying it, you should buy it, right? Well, I don't know. You have to make your own decisions, okay? I'm not sure if, if, when things are falling to pieces, I'm not sure hustling around the streets trying to trade gold is your best option, but you do you, okay? Okay, so... I also have a bunch of Bible quotes. Uh, I have a Bible quote here, and then at the end, I have a couple uh, famous quotes about gold. Now, gold is a filthy, dirty business, okay? Gold, I'll just give you the the overview. Gold primarily is coming right now, from what I understand, out of Dubai and Africa, okay? It is a deadly, deadly process, the way they process gold. They process it using uh, mercury, so, people actually put their feet, unprotected feet, in bins of mercury to get out the gold, okay? It is a horrific, horrific deal, okay? All through Africa. So, how do they then... People are wise to gold being dirty, okay? Well, some people are. Most people aren't. Um, so, what they do is this. And there is stuff information online. I go for the whole picture. I'll just give you my recap. What they do is this. is They take the gold and um, they from dubai and africa they have special planes and stuff that fly it to switzerland and then switzerland puts it into those gold bars so whoops nobody remembers the gold came from africa and dubai so yeah so it gets repackaged in switzerland and then gets sold as gold bars so trust it at your own peril okay so anyway so what's the bible say about gold of course it's in the kjv bible (laughs) The KJV is their Bible, right? The one they control. The first mention of gold in the Bible is Genesis 2, 12, KJV. And the gold of the land is good. Billium and onyx stones are there. In the KJV Bible, gold is mentioned 417 times. Silver is mentioned 320 times. And the word money, 140 times. Not once does a Bible mention paper currency that I could find. But maybe, maybe they did. Maybe I don't know. But, okay, so. Organized crime, organized labor. Organized labor is what runs our unions. Why do they all sound the same? <laughs> because they are the same. Uh, because remember in that show that I did about San Francisco and how they robbed the earthquake? the so San Francisco earthquake was dynamite and fire, okay? So, that was a robbery because the people involved in San Francisco during that time were filthy dirty, and there was so much crime with the money that they needed that robbery to destroy the evidence, right? And so, um, I don't want to bury the headline because because of that incident there, they came up with the FDIC, the Federal Insurance, okay? So, I think that we're living in some illusion right now about insurance and money in this country. So, you'll get my point about this in a bit. So, we either don't have regulations or we do, right? In the case of crypto, not many asked how it was insured, did they? They sunk their money in there without, they assumed, assumed because it was under the U.S. system that it was insured, right? So, let's try to stop making assumptions, okay? This is an active crime scene, okay? Um, and, um, there's a big crisis in this country with pensions. People have paid into their pensions. Well, those pensions have all been robbed, and I have a lot more about that down the road here. Also, I have some information about pensions in the United Kingdom. Our cousins. I have to keep our cousins <laughs> through here. <laughs> Who would have thought you'd end up with those crazy Americans, right? Okay. Okay, everything's, everything's been stolen. Everything. Okay, but I'm just going to hit the highlights here. So Social Security in this country is underfunded by 33%, 33, of course, to the tune of, let me see, $43 trillion by 100. I don't know what that means, how many trillions. Um, This is the immediate and permanent percentage rise in Social Security's payroll tax. So, yeah, they need to come up with more pay taxes to make up for this um, underfunded 33%. And that's why they're saying that Social Security is going to run out in a few years. I'm on Social Security. And just because if you're from another country, you might want to know, or if you're younger and you don't know, um, when you're on Social Security, there's lots of ways they screw us, Okay. I get half of what the average Social Security person gets because of this thing with the pills and the you know, disability and all this stuff from <laughs> from their actions, so they really rob my Social Security is what happened. And they also, when you're on Social Security, they don't do cost of living increases. They're making a big deal about one this year, but they haven't made one because of the way they jiggle the numbers. So anyway, so yeah, they, they, they trick the numbers so they have never had to pay seniors the true amount they should be getting a raise and stuff, okay? And how else it works is that if you're on Social Security, a lot of people assume that Medicare is what you get. Yeah, you do get Medicare, but Medicare does not apply to um, hospital fees and stuff. Where do most seniors get end up? In hospitals, right? So Medicare only covers some basic, basic medical appointments, okay? As a matter of fact, on Medicare, they tried to bill me for thousands of dollars one time, knowing that I was on Medicare. So, what they have to do for poor people like myself is they supplement it with Medicaid. So, the state co- covers part of our expenses. But under Medicare, most people that aren't poor enough see, I'm way far below the poverty line myself. So, I qualify for that. But of course, they took it away from me because of finding me on social media. But, long story, not part of the story. But, anyway, so. Yeah, so what happens is is that in order to be protected as a senior, you have to either be so poor that you qualify for Medicaid cal or you get a supplemental insurance policy. See, everything is everything is a big big robbery job, right? So, um and then I'm going to get into here this pension business. Multi they they have different plans, okay? And this is what I found interesting because we're going through this deal with the railroads in this country. And I'll get to that part about the unions down the road here. Um, so multi-employer plans this is for pensions beyond Social Security. Most people, about half the country or so, I, I don't know the figures, but a lot of people rely just on Social Security in this country. Okay, I'm not the only one. Um, so um, multi-employer plans have courted a large degree of criticism in recent decades for corruption related to mob involvement and general misappropriation of pension funds. In response to growing concerns over funded ratios, the U.S. Congress enacted the Multi-Employer Pension Protection Act of 1980 to increase funding requirements and curb bankruptcy fears. Nonetheless, Congress was compelled to establish further regulations and restrictions on the specific stripe of plan in 2014 with the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act of 2014, the MPRA. If you're getting a pension anytime in the future, you may be wanting to jot down a few of these things because it's going to matter greatly to you, okay, when you when you get to the point here about what they're doing with your pension. So, so, they have all these unfunded pensions, okay? So, they keep proposing these bills to straighten this around, right? Underfunded state pensions, because we have pensions, private pensions, we have multi-employer pensions, and a lot of state employees and government employees get pensions in this country, okay? Underfunded state pension liabilities have climbed to $8.28 or nearly 25,000 for every person in the United States according to a new report from American Legislative Exchange Council. So what happens is, is these pensions are being used to fund other things, bankrolling things, kind of like an open casino, think about that. There's a government backstop for private pensions, but the government backstop for multi-employer plans is very modest, and that's because, wait for this, the unions argued for that and said they didn't need a backstop because their plans were safer, safer, which was completely incorrect. Imagine that. Imagine that, right? The unions were backed up by the mafia or organized crime, right? And just, I think it was this week or, I don't know, in the last couple of months, Biden did a big speech. And the speech is called, Biden Highlights Rescued Pension for Millions of American Workers and Retirees. (laughs) He's going on and on and on about, you know, how he's coming in to save the pensions. Well, at the end of all this, you will have to decide for yourself who is telling the truth here, okay? Because there's a lot of things with these pensions, okay? There's also something called pension padding, that's been going on with the cops with all this COVID money. They get pension padding because if you pad up your hours for the last three years or something, you get paid from that three years. So if you make a lot more money in a certain time period, your pension is based on that increase in pay, right? So cops have been getting all this overtime and doing pension padding. And if you look into that, cops are making, oh, I don't know, $100,000 or more a year in just padded overtime charges, okay? Um, and then also there's a deal too with, um, there was an officer I found that he was charged in beating a homeless man nearly to death and, um, he gets to keep his pension even though he got convicted. Cops rarely get convicted, but when they do get convicted, they get to keep their pensions. Um, this is why I call them dickless wonders, okay? A big, and I'm not for sure this cop is on testosterone because testosterone is what they a lot of them are on okay that causes a lot of sudden rages and rages and urges to destroy other people so yeah beating up a homeless guy this homeless guy was in a confined area could not escape okay this is who these fucking assholes are okay let's get into let me get away from that subject get a little bit irritated let me get to so how do we get into all these labor unions we're we're right now facing the biggest rail strike in our history okay and it got it's going because of the unions what i find amazing in all of this is the unions the, the rail workers are in horrible shape and what's going on is that the unions <laughs> are trying to get it fixed, well, I have to ask you this. It's been going on for a 100 years with the unions and the railroads. Why did it get this bad? What were those union people doing to protect those workers? Oh, I forget, because that wasn't their role to begin with. It's a dual world. The unions were there to trick us, right? So I'll give you a little bit about the, what they call the rise and the fall of unions, Okay. And remember, unions had their hands in every pocket in this country at one point, okay? American workers formed unions as early as the late 1700s. For example, printers in New York City unionized in 1778. And carpenters in Philadelphia fought together for a 10-hour workday in 1791. However, most of these early unions were short-lived, breaking up once they'd achieved their goals. Labor unions pushed for bigger things after the Civil War. Civil War. You know what civil means, right? A polite war with mixed results. The first successful involvement in politics came in 1868 when a coalition of skilled and unskilled workers and farmers called the National Labor Union succeeded in convincing Congress to establish an eight-hour workday for federal employees. In the 1890s, both the Pullman Railroad Workers and the United Mine Workers went on strike for higher pay and better working conditions, but the government broke up both strikes. In 1881, workers from national and local unions banded together to form the Federation of Organized Labor and Labor Unions, which later became the American Federation of Labor, and you'll hear this all the time as AFL. The power of unions grew during the 20th century when Congress established the Department of Labor, the DOL, and passed several worker friendly laws. The Clayton Antitrust Act protected workers' right to go on strike. The Fair Labor Act Standards Act established the federal minimum wage, rules for overtime pay, and restrictions on child labor. Well, I hate to break it to you, but there's cases of child labor. I'm in the middle of the country in farmland, and there's a lot of abuses of children. And this this isn't me guessing. These are these are cases where they got caught, right? In um slaughterhouses stuff where they're employing children to this day right now. So um During the Great Depression, always a cause and effect, right? Unions became a key part of the New Deal coalition, which supported President Roosevelt's policies. The union movement hit its peak after World War II. Unions in several different industries held successful strikes, and organized labor became a major force in the economy. By 1954, nearly 35% of all American workers were union members. In 1955, the AFL merged with the Congress of Industrial Organizations, known as the CIO, to form the AFL CIO. That's the one you're going to hear the most about, right? The longest lived. And most powerful trade union in U.S. history. That's AFL-CIO. However, at the height of their power, some unions, notably the Teamsters Union, which represents truck drivers, was plagued by corruption and ties to organized crime. Unions remained a strong force in the economy during the 60s and the 70s, but their power was gradually declining. Cheap imports weakened U.S. manufacturing. Do you imagine that? I guess they didn't figure that handing over all the uh, manufacturing to China would be a problem, right? <laughs> it is called the plan, not the bug of the system, okay? Same way they got China to manufacture all of our medicine. Oh, speaking of medicine, now this, I'm not trying to be a social media slimeball, but you really need to be prepared. They just said the other day that they're running out of childhood medicine in this country. Is it bluff? I don't know. But if you have a child, I, I would take them out their word for it, right? Do you realize, and you're going to have to research this on your own, Uh, I've only had a couple chest colds when I need antibiotics, but fish, F-I-S-H, antibiotics are the same as human antibiotics. So do with that what you may, but you could also create a stockpile of antibiotics using these, just buy them yourself (laughs) online with fish antibiotics. (laughs) So you might want to be stocking up on certain things because when the union's, shut this country down. Now, I'm not saying they're going to for sure do it, but I think there's a good chance this rail strike is going to happen. That's why I'm focusing on... I had another show I wanted to do that was far more fun and stuff. (laughs) Um, I'm focusing on this because I think we're going to go for a big kaboom here with these unions, but I'm not really sure yet, okay. So unions lost much of their influence with the Democratic Party. The Republicans turned against them entirely. In 1981, President Ronald Reagan, who also unleashed all those poor people out of institutions, who had once been a union president himself, broke a strike by PATCO, the Air Traffic Controllers Union. This move undermined the power of the union movement as a whole. Today, I found some statistics with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Less than 11% of all American workers are members of unions. In the private sector, the figure is less than 7%. And all you read about in the news these days is they're trying to unionize Amazon and they're trying to unionize uh, Starbucks. (coughs) Many of the largest U.S. companies are actively hostile to unions and go to extreme lengths to stop their workers from joining one. Then there was an incident that The Atlantic reported on in 2015 that Walmart, the nation's biggest private employer, had fired and disciplined workers who attempted to organize. It even closed down stores where where workers had joined or formed unions. Um, Yeah, I should read this because it puts it into context. Um, Most unions in the United States are associated with either the AFL-CIO or the change to wind federation that's the cio and that began in 1955 and the cio split i don't know one of them split the first union's 1800s um although the labor union movements have been around for a long time and have fought on behalf of workers they have also been bastions of racism and sexism imagine that Okay, and also all of our teachers are primarily union members. That allows the unions to take a teacher who isn't performing well and put her in a low, or him, in a low economic area because they can't fire them, so they can shuffle them around. Education, and there's also that woman, um, Randy Weinstein, big butch woman, um, Education Association of the United States founded in 1857. This organization works to support those who are teachers and those who work in colleges and universities. Its members work at all levels of education from preschool up through higher education. Okay. There's a Service Employees International Union founded in 1921. This union works specifically with members of three different sectors, healthcare, public services, and property services. The majority of its members are involved in the healthcare field. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, founded in 1932 in Wisconsin, this union represents public employees across the United States. It is the largest trade union of public workers. Teamsters, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, was founded in 1903 when two other unions merged. The Teamsters have been one of the most influential unions in the United States over the course of their history. It is one of the largest unions in the world. Now, I didn't fact check that particular point, just to be honest. I, I, I don't, I'm assuming that's correct. The United Food and Commercial Workers, founded in 1974, this union represents individuals across several sectors, including grocery, retail, distillery, cannabis, packing and processing, and chemical workers. It was created by a merger of three other unions. United Auto Workers, founded in 1935, this union represents workers in the U.S. and Canada who are active in the auto and aerospace industry, as well as the casinos, and some health care workers. One of their notable achievements was the first negotiated employer-paid health insurance for industry workers. United Steelworkers, founded in 1942, this union represents workers in the paper and forestry industry, manufacturing and rubber industry, among others. So initial conversations to, to create it began in 1936, When the Steelworkers Organized Committee was formed, they have eight founding principles which still guide them today. American Federation of Teachers, or the AFT, one of the earliest unions on this list, was founded in 1916. It is the second largest representation of teachers in the United States. Most of the members are educators, although some are paraprofessionals. International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, one of the oldest unions in the top ten, the IBEW, was founded in 1891, which represents workers in the electricity industry and those who work in other public utilities. Its members span the U.S., Canada, Panama, Guam, and several Caribbean islands. Labor's International Union, North America, founded 1903. Um, so its members were comprised of workers who spoke English, German, or Italian. So, uh, now let me talk about these pension plans because pensions, unions, all this stuff, right? Robbery, stealing. (laughs) Millions of workers and retirees in the United States currently pay into or are paid by dramatically underfunded defined benefit pension plans. Some of these plans, and you'll have to do your own due diligence. Please look for yourself. If you're expecting a pension or on a pension, thinky-thinky, kids, um, because I have read that they're underfunded from anywhere from, I don't know, 10 to 40%. That means all that money that was paid in is now gone, okay, because of the way it's been used as a casino in the stock market. So, I would look into every single thing you can look into. If you think you own your house, look into it all. Look into every single bit of it all. If you trust these people, you haven't heard a single word I've said. (laughs) This is what I don't understand is that they just do one trick to the next and people keep buying into them. And all these people consider themselves to be searching for the truth, right? As they sit there on social media, sucking in lies. Okay, so, uh, the frequently troubled plans take multiple forms, but the crux of their plight can be usually boiled down to structural instability, with more money flowing out than going in. There's the the multi-employer pensions, which workers from various employers pay into a single plan. It's a particular acute disaster because largely due to a combination of inadequate funding and risky investing. I don't know if I have it on this page, so I'll just tell you now. Um, What they did was they protected it by law so that if you want to look into your pension plan, well, by law, they don't have to tell you who they've invested in, okay? There's There's some shaky deals in here that you really... When, if you go to investigate your pension plan, you're going to come up with a lot of roadblocks. So first I would explore the, your ability to look into it because some of these pension plans have had rulings from Congress in place meaning that they do not have to disclose where they're gambling with your money in. Okay? Uh, the precarious state of pensions, which has grown even shakier in the wake of the economic turmoil brought on by the coronavirus pandemic, should be of interest to all taxpayers. As failed pension systems are typically bailed out by the U.S. government, typically at the expense of billions of dollars. So these things in the past, only one or two of them have ever gone under. Okay. And, um, well, when they go under, the government steps in. Okay. Now, you have to have a pretty strong belief in these people to think that The next time these things go under, that anybody's stepping in, okay? But decide for yourself, maybe I'm just crazy, maybe they're right, (laughs) maybe I'm nuts, (laughs) okay? Okay, and then I looked at some questions. Why are defined benefit pension plans under so much stress across the country? Are they uniformly under stress? See, this is the glory of research. All you have to do is come up with the right questions, and bingo, you'll find the answer. Okay, it's not uniform, and depending on the sector sector you look at, there is a variation. With defined benefits, promises have been made, and those promises are fixed dollar obligations in the future. Some plans have set that money aside and invested conservatively others have not set the money aside or set aside part of it and invested aggressively these choices are really what determines a level of stress so i pulled up a couple of examples here okay there was the illinois illinois public sector pension plan the reason their plans are so poorly funded is because they just don't they don't put sufficient money in it's very simple they keep making promises, and they don't fund them. There's been a pattern over time in states where they, are, where they have the most leeway in which they just haven't contributed. But they're, they're collecting the money from the workers, okay? They're just not doing putting it anywhere. There are some states that have mandatory contributions, and there is typically a formula that says you have to put in X amount, and they tend to be in better shape. Often not great shape, but manageable. And then in the private sector, there are typically two groups of plans. There are those run by individual employers. The IBM pension plan or the General Motors pension plan are examples of that. And for the most part, they tend to be in good shape because they have relatively stringent funding rules. Then there are what is called multi employer pension plans. And those are in serious trouble, according to these people, right? Remember I'm not on social media, but this isn't financial advice. <laughs> I love when people do that. One of those losers that was pitching gold the other day, I think it was yesterday or so, I I don't know. He he, he even put a thing up there <laughs> saying this isn't financial advice. As he's as he's pitching gold stocks and gold bullion, both, okay? <laughs> Okay, Um, the multi-employer pension plans and those that are in serious trouble. Generally speaking, and here's where it gets good, kids. There's always a catch here, right? Multi-employer plans are managed by unions, not employers. And and contributions are determined by collective bargaining agreements. Those plans are chronically underfunded. Some are only 30 or 40% funded. I hear a cat coming around the corner here. With this cold weather coming up, if you have a cat, get a heating pad. They love that. Um, okay. The reason that they're in such bad shape, in part, because they didn't collect enough. Well, psychopaths have a distinct, <laughs> a distinct um, characteristic of pretty sh- poor long-term thinking plans. They didn't collect enough, and also because they invested aggressively. And they had no real way to make up for the poor performance and if you go into an environment like we have right now there are two things that happen one is interest rates go down and lower interest rates mean those fixed dollar promises are now more costly and then on the asset side they invest a great deal in the stock market which shouldn't which they shouldn't be doing when the stock market goes down, now you have the combination of higher promises and less money to pay those promises. So another question I had was, what are the societal implications for underfunded or underfunded or underfunded pensions? If you look at multi-employer plans, those people working in coal mines, driving trucks, in bakeries, typically physical, difficult jobs, and they certainly earned the pension they were promised by their union. Some of them are in their 70s and retirement, and they're getting their pensions cut. Yeah, that's what's going on now, pension cutting. The cops are patting their pensions, and everybody else is getting theirs cut. <laughs> they're the government backstop for private pensions. But the government backstop for multi-employer plans is very modest. And that's because the unions argued for that and said they didn't need a backstop because their plans were safer. I think I read this earlier, but it's a big point, right? How do they get so screwed? Well, the unions, right? (laughs) Once the government backstop runs out of money, there is basically nothing. They are literally there are literally pensioners right now who have a respectable pension thirty thousand dollars a year or thereabouts, and that's going to be cut a few hundred a few hundred a year in five years if the government doesn't bail them out. And then I was looking into um, did COVID exasperate because you know this is part of the plan right, crush everybody. Does the COVID-19 crisis exacerbate these societal implications, particularly as states face budget struggles? Fiscal crises always do the same thing. They always reduce revenue and increase costs. For the most part, when you look at the way the states are organized, they don't really have a way to set aside additional funds when times are good. The incentives for government are to spend a little bit more than they collect. So when you hit these crises, it does pose a significant crisis. And then I looked a little bit more at Illinois. At some point, the public pension plans are going to run out of money, and then pension promises are going to need to be paid out of tax revenue. That means they've always relied on the taxpayers to bail them out, along with the banks. The point I'm presenting to you today... Do you trust the U.S. government to bail anything out moving forward? And that's what I'd like you to thinky-thinky about, okay? Um, This can lead to a reinforcing downward spiral where increasing taxes are needed to pay for past pension promises. It is hard to see how such a spiral can be alleviated without the involvement of the federal government. My next question. Do you see the evidence of big plans that are invested in the stock market making riskier bets to try to make up lost ground? In other words, are they trying to make riskier bets now to catch up for these deficits, right? The answer was... It shouldn't happen, but you do see cases. It's such a frustrating thing to see. Riskier investments have higher expected returns, but they also have higher volatility, which can be very damaging to pension systems that have promised fixed benefit amounts. If a pension fund can't bear high levels of investment risk, then it should do what insurance companies do with their annuity portfolios. Insurance companies have trillions of dollars in annuities and they're unaffected by what's happening in the last six months because the promises are fixed and the money is invested mostly in bonds, which are fixed. Those annuity promises are no different than defined benefit plans and they're all in great shape. Well, I would have to have a major argument with this, right, okay, this statement right here, okay? Because it's saying that... These promises, these insurance companies can make these promises right. I don't know. Because you have to also believe that they're, they're investing in bonds, okay? Who controls the bonds? Who pays when bonds? Let's say these bonds fail, okay? Well, who picks up the slack? <laughs> thinky, thinky. It all seems to lead into a big trap if you ask me. But hey, that's just me. What's happened in other sectors, if there's a belief you can guarantee, generate arbitrage, then you can make, take money and invest in something riskier and earn an extra return. In theory, there's nothing wrong with that, and in theory, there should be a premium for taking on risk, but you can't guarantee higher returns, and sometimes you have lower returns. With company-sponsored pension plans on average, they respond to negative investment returns with increased contributions. So, yeah, I think you get the picture here. That um, I don't know. You'd have to trust the bonds. You'd have to trust the U.S. government, right? So, it depends on, I think this depends on um, your trust level of the U.S. government. I have none, but you can have your own, right? Okay. There was this group that, um, his, and I'm going to talk, be talking now about the organized crime part of the unions, because the unions, I couldn't decide how to present this, because it all, it all boils together, right? It all falls under the U.S. government, and I'm kind of presenting the case that I'm not sure I would trust them if I were you. I think this is one of their better tricks, because, um, you, they created so many victims with this thing but they appear like they're always the one who's doing the right thing, right? That's really the best kind of con when, you're, when your victims are all believing you, right? Historically organized crime groups such as La Costa Nostra, or the mafia gain substantial corrupt influence and even more control over la- labor unions by creating a climate of fear and intimidation among employers and union members by threats and acts of violence. Well, that's our people, isn't it? A bunch of low-class thugs. <laughs> Dickless wonders, I call them. They never can have a fair fight. That's that, That's their deal. It's always got to be beaten up on somebody more vulnerable. Working with the U.S. Attorney's Office. The labor management racketeering unit has assisted criminal prosecution and civil RICO, it's RICO is what the is, RICO lawsuits to eliminate such corruption influence and control of labor unions and their affiliate organizations. As of 2020, the US had obtained relief in twenty-four civil RICO cases involving labor labor organizations affiliated with the Teamsters. During the period from 2017 to 2021, the Man- Labor Management racketeering Unit worked with the United States Attorney's Office in Detroit to charge and obtain guilty pleas from these Chrysler people. Yeah, they always do a few of them, right? A few of them appear to go down. But remember, just like this Sam Bagman person, they really <laughs> don't go to prison, okay? These jails are for us, not for them. If they go to prison, they go to that Supermax out in Colorado that I've talked about, or some other place just to kind of hang out. Okay, now let me keep moving along with the crimes here. Another huge crime that I have talked briefly on, but if you're going to be traveling in this country, I'd be very, very cautious. Civil asset torture. Forfeiture is a tactic used by law enforcement to seize a person's money, car, or other property, including bank accounts, businesses, houses, and jewelry, based simply on the suspicion that the property was used to commit a crime or commit connected to criminal activity. Civil forfeiture in the United States, also called civil asset forfeiture or civil judicial forfeiture, is a process in which law enforcement officers take assets from people who are suspected of involvement with crime or illegal activity without necessarily charging the owners with wrongdoing, while civil procedure as opposed to criminal procedure generally involves a dispute between two private citizens. Civil forfeiture involves a dispute between law enforcement and property, and that property could be anything like a pile of cash or a house or a boat and the things they suspect of being involved in a crime. To get back the seized property, owners must prove it was not involved in criminal activity. Sometimes it can mean a threat to seized property as well as the act of seizure itself. Civil forfeiture is not considered to be an example of criminal justice financial obligation. Proponents see civil forfeiture as a powerful tool to thwart criminal organizations involved in the illegal drug trade. Since it allows authorities to seize cash and other assets from suspected narcotics traffickers. So yeah, there's a lot of cases. Um, Go look. Civil asset forfeiture. There's some really heartbreaking stories out there. Cops stealing. You know, like there was this one guy. He was a military, um, ex-military person, and he was driving from state to state to buy a home or something, and had thousands of cash. And he, it was it was a disturbing clip to watch because this guy was being so polite to that criminal officer. Yes, sir. No, sir. And then the officer says, do you have any, um, why are you traveling there? And then he finds out he's going to buy. Well, do you have any cash? Well, yes, of course, sir. I have cash on me. (laughs) Well, give it to me. And they take it, right? They just take it. That's why I think they've been pre-selected. A lot of psychopaths to be in a lot of these categories. But anyways, um, critics argue that innocent owners can become entangled in the process to the extent that their fourth amendment or fifth amendment rights are violated. So, um, critics argue that the incentives lead to corruption and law enforcement behavior, misbehavior. There is consensus that abuses have happened, but disagreements about their extent, as well as whether the overall benefits to society are worth the cost of the incidences of abuse. Well, what they do is, um, some states have passed, um, I know in Nebraska they have a law that they can't rob you as easily, right? So, so, the cops technically, in certain states, can't seize your assets, but here's how it works. What they do because you're traveling interstate, anything interstate becomes federal, okay? So, let's say a cop pulls you over in a state that has ruled against these seizures, right? Well, what the cops do at that point is they grab the money first of first of all, they have their deal, they get the get their hands on the money. Then they turn the money over to the feds because they suspect it was a federal crime, right? See how this works? And they actually have payment rates. So the feds then split the money with the cops. So, yeah, it is set up so that um, properties can be confiscated, houses, cars, yeah, I said all that, okay. Um, they can get raw materials needed to make them. They can get your vehicles. Um, they can take all your records. They can take. They can take everything, okay? All they had to do is suspect. And uh, they say that... Uh, here is a good one. In May 2010, a couple was driving from New York to Florida, and they were stopped by police because they had a cracked windshield. <coughs> Excuse me. During questioning, the officer decided that 32000 cash in the van was probably involved in criminal or drug related activity they seized it they shared it with federal authorities and they have something called equitable sharing it is actually a thing and this has also been approved by the uh, supreme court (laughs) the victim hired the lawyer hired a lawyer this is the the catch you get caught in one state you got to go back to hire a lawyer there but these people actually hired a lawyer to get back the seized money and they were urged to settle for half of the seized amount. And after lawyer fees, the victims only got 7000 So $32,000, half went to the feds. <laughs> Part of it went to the attorneys. And you, you see how this all works? The attorneys, the feds. It's all a big trick, Okay. Um, and the one more case I want to tell you about... Um, there was this case in Massachusetts in two thousand and nine. These are not that long ago. The Taosbury Police, along with the DEA, sought to seize the motel built by his. There was a guy, and his father had built this motel. Okay, and it was, it was owned outright by this person called Russ Caswell. Okay, so his father built this hotel. The hotel motel was valued at over one million dollars. Authorities never inspected Caswell. N- authorities never suspected Caswell of having committed a crime or even benefited from one. Instead, their rationale was that there had been 15 drug-related arrests over a 14-year period at this Russ Caswell's motel. Right, 14, 15 drug incidents over a 14-year period. But Caswell had rented out over 200,000 rooms in that time period and cooperated with all law enforcement activities. After several years, and with the help of pro bono counsel, Caswell was able to get his motel back. A DEA agent questioned during the lawsuit admitted that he was tasked with finding properties to be forfeited and that the agency wouldn't go over a property unless the owner had over $50,000 in equity. So they actually sat down (laughs) and looked at property that had a value of over $50,000 in equity and then they would decide to move in and seize that property. And I I, I try to look at my bank but my bank is insignificant because I don't keep money in my bank. Uh, I get $20, I buy a bag of rice. Um, But you might want to look Go to your bank and look at your terms and services and do a search for bail-in clause. Does your bank have a bail-in clause? That means like what they did to Greece. I've talked about this in the past. So, does your bank have a bail-in clause? Okay, now let's get to the fun part here. Um, oh, I had some figures on Lehman since I've been talking about them, um, That was, um, the lengthy bankruptcy proceeding has allocated resources elsewhere that could have otherwise been used to pay creditors. This is how it works. Through February of 2011, more than $1.2 billion in fees had been charged by attorneys and other professionals representing the debtors alone. And I didn't have time to look for any more of that robbery, but pretty significant amount of money, right? Okay. And then now we're going to get to the fun part. How much money does this broke-ass country owe everybody? I must hear it. I swear to God, I feel like someday my ears are going to bleed. I hear so many times, the U.S. is the biggest democracy in the world. We're the richest country in the world. Really? Anybody look around? There isn't a bridge in this country that doesn't have people in tents sleeping underneath it right now. So, I was looking at this is my question. How exactly do foreign countries own part of the U.S. national debt? What exactly do they hold? Why do they do that? And how much does the U.S. owe to itself? And, exact, and how exactly did we get to this point? Here's a good part. Most US government debt is traded routinely on open markets, just as other types of stocks and bonds are. And here again, you can buy these bonds, so um you can buy anybody buy these bonds. The Chinese are buying the bonds, everybody's buying these bonds, okay? Individuals often hold US debt instruments because they're arguably no safer investments on the planet. Well, I would have to argue with this entire premise, okay? But I'll keep going on here. The only reason I'm sharing this is in the hopes that you will thinky-thinky for yourself, okay? Most U.S. debt is issued with the full faith and credit of the United States. And that means if the government needed to confiscate property or print money, you're getting paid. Okay? Foreign nations own U.S. debt as a way to stabilize currency and to streamline international trade. No matter what, where you are in the world, crude oil is generally priced in U.S. dollars. So you might want to have ample reserves of U.S. currency in order to minimize currency-based fluctuations in the price of crude. And that's that whole money game. If you borrow money in U.S. dollars, another country has to pay it's, it's, not going there now, but um, the U.S. owes money to itself in areas like the so-called Social Security Trust Fund. American workers pay FICA taxes into this fund, which then turns around and swaps your dollars per U.S. debt instruments. In other words, governments raid Social Security in exchange for what amounts to IOUs from the Treasury. And then I was looking into uh, what foreign countries own the U.S. debt. But first, let me get to this part. In the international finance system, U.S. debt can be bought by and held by virtually anyone. In fact, if you hold a U.S. Treasury bond or a T-bill in your portfolio right now, you are already a creditor to the United States government. As you will see in today's chart, I found this over at this foreign country place. Foreign countries like China and Japan can also accumulate large positions in U.S. treasuries, making them significant players in the overall United States debt pile. The U.S. currently sits at 20, it's, it's more than this, trillion, and is held by a range of domestic and foreign investors, okay, so... This step I don't really understand, so I'm not going to talk about it. All the, you know, it'll get too confusing. Uh, it's talking about the U.S. government or Federal Reserve. This number will include securities sitting in retirement accounts. Yeah, they got it all wrapped up, don't they? Um, Seven point six trillion of debt is held by domestic investors. These are marketable securities held by banks, mutual funds, pensions, insurance companies, and other investors. While debt held domestically is most uninterestingly a bigger question mark and the $6.3 trillion. um, Yeah, see, this stuff is not interesting, so nobody looks. And I have been, like, glazing over, I must admit. So I will keep going here about halfway through here. Okay, so who owns the debt? Number one, China has... 1.11 trillion in U.S. debt holdings at 17.3% percentage. Next is Japan, um, 16.5% or 1.6 trillion. Brazil, 307 billion or 4.8%. United Kingdom, 301 billion. Isn't it amazing United Kingdom is investing money here? Boy, huh. United Kingdom, 301 billion or 4.7. Ireland. Two hundred seventy billion, or four point two percent. Switzerland, two hundred twenty-seven billion, or three percent. Luxembourg, two hundred twenty-four billion. So that, from China to Luxembourg, are the people who are holding U.S. debt, okay? And foreign U.S. debt, Cayman Islands. Um, came, I, I, I'm not going to read that because I'm, I'm lost, okay. <laughs> China has accumulated treasury securities over decades as part of its strategy to keep its domestic currency from strengthening. The export heavy nation has reduced a swath of treasuries in recent months, selling out close to 200 billion of them. So China's selling off holdings, which I don't care. China has 1.11 trillion of treasuries left in reserve. The general consensus is that dumping all of them together at once could destabilize the global financial system, having an equally negative effect on China as well. That said, the foreign nations holding U.S. debt, are such a risk will always exist. Um, And this was something that, I don't know, let me read it here. While it's not surprising to see countries like China, Japan, or Brazil on the list of the top foreign debt holders, what are places like the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg, or Ireland doing on the list? Two simple facts help to explain these anomalies. First, despite having a population of 60,000 people, the Cayman Islands is a hedge fund capital with over 10,000 funds domiciled there. Luxembourg makes a reason for similar reasons, given that it is a European-based tax shelter equivalent. So yeah, I'd I'd have my eyes on Cayman Island and Ireland. Ireland, on the other hand, is the overseas headquarters for many U.S.-based tech giants like Facebook or Apple. Yes, I actually, when I was doing work for Intel, I did some promotional pieces that they handed out in Ireland when they were doing their big opening there. I had no idea this was all a tax scam. So, Ireland got a whole bunch of people, like the tech people, to go over there. Um, And apparently, they said, these corporations like to hold their overseas profits in highly liquid treasuries rather than paying a reparation tax to bring the cash back to American soil. That's why they have um, it all rigged. So, these are just examples of, of... we're, we're big pockets of money are there, okay? Uh, the tech freaks, Silicon Valley, they don't pay any taxes. That, that's the plan, not the bug. Okay. So, I kept hearing about Fannie Mae and them. Fannie Mae are supposedly who backs these things up, okay? On one hand, there is no formal insurance or formal guarantee for Chinese bank deposits. But everyone seems to believe that if there's a crisis like China the government will bail it out and it's because every single case up until now, the government has bailed these things out, okay so uh, the belief that the government will backstop bank deposits is so strong that if the government fails to do this there will be massive riots and demonstrations so yeah, I don't know I... I, 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 (laughs) I don't want to tell other people what to do, but I've actually, I have moments of great sadness at times, actually, because, um, just how effectively they've beat us into the fucking corner and we took it all this time. Okay. (sighs) So we have a belief that the government's going to bail this stuff out. Okay. You have to decide if this is your belief or not. My belief is they're screwed. Okay. Um, there basically been discussions about setting. I'm going to be talking about the FDIC in a second here, but there's basically been discussions about setting up this insurance thing for these other people, but haven't gone anywhere. Okay, let's talk about the FDIC. That's the big bug in this room here. Um, oh, why am I not talking about first? Oh, there's a F. FSCS, that's the, um, UK version, okay, and, um, I can't get into all that because it's too crazy right now, but UK has its own problems, okay, um, oh, but no, I'm going to read this, it's pretty significant, okay, um, The F- F- Financial Services Compensation Scheme, called the FSCS, is the UK's statutory fund of last resort. So that's where you guys go if things fall apart. At the moment, the threshold for deposits is about $62,000 or 35000 But it's expected to rise. See, what happens is people aren't aware that they see that insurancing and they're not aware that there's limits on that insurance right you can only be insured for so much so if you go in there and you have over this $62,000 what that overage amount is not going to be insured the compensation limit of applies to each depositor for the total of their deposits with an organization regardless of how oh that's interesting regardless of how many accounts see in this country you can have multiple accounts if people hold multiple accounts in banks that are part of a larger group, if each of the banks is separately authorized by the FSCS, they pay compensation up to the limit per authorized institutions. If each of the banks is not separately authorized, but is covered by the parent company's authorization, FSCS would pay compensation up to the limit once, irrespective of how many different institutions a person held accounts with. So, I'm reading what somebody said here. They said, so for 100% peace of mind, it might be worth, so this person was encouraging somebody to consider these um, restrictions, right? And they went on to say something that was got me entirely interested. They, They in other words, they're giving out this information about how these financial schemes work and how much in the UK you can hold in your bank, okay they said, however Great Britain is not a third world country, its GDP approached 3 trillion dollars in 2007 I would not be worrying too much well, that's what they said, I said I'd be very well, I'm not worried, you know what I mean, I would just be information can be a valuable asset, okay because in the US depositors have FDIC protection up to one hundred thousand dollars in the event of a bank failure. Okay. Customers know when they see the FDIC sign that they will get back all of their insured deposits in the unlikely event that insured bank or saving association should fail. The number of bank failures in 2006 was none. By 2010, it was 140, about one every two business days. And this wasn't in the busiest year of the FDIC. I found this graph about FDIC history. In 1989, they had a big spike in failures. In that year, the FDIC was dealing with a couple of failures a day. It made the Great Depression look like a picnic. And this was interesting because I didn't know how they really, like when a bank fails, what exactly do they do? Remember, the banks are all them, right? The feds, the banks. (laughs) The FDIC doesn't wait for banks to fail. They constantly perform what's called a stress test or bank liquidity its ability to pay its own debt and depositors. When a bank starts getting short on capital, the FDIC doesn't wait for a run on deposits or receivership. They put together a team well in advance, auction off the bank to a larger bank in a secret option. Then at 5 p.m. Friday, they hit all the branches of the bank simultaneously and take over. They even stay at different hotels so that no one knows what's going on. The reason why the FDIC doesn't wait is because they know a bank run will kill a healthy bank as quickly as a sick one. It's their job to keep up the con confidence, also known as CON, C-O-N, con game, right? In the banking system as a whole. So they said yes, even if they did run out of money due to huge demand, the government would quickly fund them. The issue could be a longer wait to receive your check and settlement. In reality, this is according to them, the Fed is constantly monitoring all banks and would soon pick up on any banks that might pose problems and take action it would be highly unlikely that several american banks would fail together it might possibly have a number of foreign major foreign banks with operations in america okay wait a minute it might possibly have a number of major foreign banks with operations in america plus the odd american major might fall together fail together but even these would have customer deposit protection. So I guess even foreign banks here have FDIC. But don't don't <laughs> don't build your life around me saying that because I'm guessing, okay, based on what this says here. So uh well I think that FDIC will very quickly run out of money. So Congress will have to pass new funding is how it works, okay? The problem is you'll have several major banks fail at the same time. Then where are you going to deposit your check? Um, The FDIC, after the 2007 crisis, the law was changed allowing Congress to fund the FDIC. Historically, it could only be funded by the levy on its members. So in 2007, they probably rigged this thing so taxpayers would take care of it, right? They've always been removing the burden off of the banks onto the taxpayers, if you've noticed the patterns here. And I had this basic question, um, what happens to your debt if the bank that loaned the money goes under? So in other words, what happens to your house or your debt or anything you have with that bank if the bank goes under? Your loan will become the property of the purchasing bank if there is one and if they opt to purchase your loan. If there is no purchase or the purchaser does not want your loan, it will go into a receivership with FDI liquidation. FDIC will sell the loan, but you are still bound to the original terms and conditions, so they're just going to take your loan and do whatever with it, okay? And then I had another big question. Can the FDIC go bankrupt? As of June the thirtieth, two thousand and one, the FDIC deposit insurance fund had a balance of only three point nine billion to protect loss protection on six point five four trillion of insured. Let me go over that again, okay? <laughs> this is a big one. This was a well, I didn't look up the 2020 balance, okay? But this was out of the 2011 balance, okay? The FDIC Deposit Insurance Fund had a balance of $3.9 billion to protect $6.54 trillion, okay? So, uh, yeah, uh, I think this is a big problem, but hey, what do I know, right? Um, and then there is people have these other ideas, okay? So... Somebody had this idea that maybe the FDIC might have 99 years to pay back insured deposits if a bank fails. And somebody responded to them and said, I have no idea who fed you that BS, but I suspect it was someone trying to sell you an alternative banking product. Federal law requires deposits be paid as soon as possible. As soon as possible. And historically, it is the next business day. Or within a very few days. Taking 99 years to pay depositors would have a deteriorating effect on confidence in the banking system. Maintaining confidence is FDI's entire reason for existence. Yeah, well, it looks to me and I'm not any kind of genius here, but it looks to me like they're terribly underfunded. Um, There's only one that they took out and that was a Washington, Mut- Washington Mutual case. And... They lost $17 billion on a nine-day banking run. Uh, I don't remember why they had the banking run, but um, they had a banking run, and they lost, they had a nine-day banking run. Um, if things ever get to that point, the FDIC depleted their reserves. We would have other ways to worry about that other than our retirement savings. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I don't mean to be negative. I'm just trying to share the facts, okay? It looks to me like the facts say that, I don't know, more than one bank goes down, I think it's going to be a huge problem. Where will FDIC get the money to pay back bank depositors in the event we have a widespread banking crisis? And um, they say, of course, the FDI has deposit insurance, and they have statutory authority to borrow... In addition, $3 billion from Treasury. But that's, that's only a small... Um. Aside from the insurance fund, there is a congressional intent of the insurance being backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. But this would be dependent on Congress actually agreeing on an appropriate bill. Okay. If the laws exceed the available funds... A highly partisan Congress might decide not to honor the full faith and credit clause. and might do this in order to eliminate the possibility of ever having a government-backed insurance that would put the public... Uh, anyway, yeah, well, um, Well. yeah, the, the clause is full faith and credit, okay? If you want to live on that clause, good for you. But that means that they could decide, like with the bail-in business, that everybody takes what they call a haircut, Right. What's a bank failure? A bank failure is the closing of a bank by a federal or state banking regulatory agency. Generally, a bank is closed when it is unable to meet its obligations to depositors and others. The term insured bank means a bank insured by FDIC, including banks chartered by the federal government, as well as most banks chartered by the state governments. Most, right? An insured bank must display an official FDIC logo at their teller window. What's the FDIC's role in a bank failure was my big question. In the event of a bank failure, the FDIC acts in two capacities. First, as the insurer of the bank's deposits. The FDIC pays insurance to the depositors up to the insurance limit. Second, the FDIC as a receiver of the failed banks assumes the task of selling, collecting the assets of the failed bank and settling its debts, including claims for deposits in excess of the insured limit. What's the purpose of the FDIC deposit insurance? The FDIC protects depositors' funds in the unlikely event of the financial failure of their bank or savings. Well, I just read a couple seconds ago that the FDIC is underfunded by trillions of dollars. So just read this. Just listen to this with a ear toward crime. Okay. The FDIC protects deposit in the unlikely event. The FDIC deposit insurance covers the balance covers the balance of each depositor's account dollar for dollar up to the insurance limit according including principal and in any accrued interest through the date of the insured bank closing and here's what the FDIC is in this country which is far more generous than our relatives over in the UK top of the morning to you UK people okay the insur- standard insurance amount of 250 thousand dollars per depositor per insured bank For each ownership category. This includes principal and accrued interest and applies to all depositors of an insured bank. Deposits in separate branches of an insured bank are not separately insured. So in other words, if you think you're going to go to the same bank but open it up in different... um, It's not going to work. It's per bank, Okay. Therefore, it is possible to have deposits of more than $250,000. Well, wait a minute. I read that wrong. Oh. Well, I don't know. It doesn't make a hill of beans a difference. They're saying that you can have in different branches of the same bank, but I, I I don't know that I would trust that information. Um, you, you can look up. I got this information from It's the FDIC's brochure. It's called Your Insured Deposits, okay? And you can take a look at all that. Very easy to find online very, very easy. Um, okay. This was, I was looking at this because of all these foreign investments and foreign banks in this country to see, um, how safe they are. FDIC insurance covers deposits received at an insured bank. Um, it includes CDs and all that. Okay. Um, Okay, that's, I don't know, I'm a little dizzy here on that stuff. Okay, so I wanted to know, is there a process for how, do they notify you when this happens, right? I had a run-in with my bank over, they got hacked. It was just something so stupid that uh, it turned into a pretty big deal that I I would just be very cautious if I were you. Um, So, the FDIC notices each depositor in writing using the depositor's address on record with the bank. This notification is mailed immediately after the bank closes. When the failed bank is acquired by another bank, the assuming bank also notifies the depositors. This notification is usually is mailed within the first bank statement after the assumption. So by the first bank statement, they'll let you know that, hey, we got your account. Okay. Every effort is also made to inform the public. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Um And you'll have to look for more of this f d i c stuff I am like spending it it's just too it's too complicated for me right now, but I think the whole idea is to get you the picture that start looking okay just start looking um, I had looked into um there was a panic of nineteen o seven with the banks and um the great Depression. During the panics of 1893 and 1907, many banks filed bankruptcy due to bank runs caused by contagion. So they're obviously quite concerned about bank runs, right? Both of the panics renewed discussions on depositing insurance. In 1893, William Jennings Bryan presented a bill to Congress proposing a national deposit insurance fund. that proposes in 1893. No action was taken, as the legislature paid more attention to the agriculture depression at the time. After not, I'm reading their history because their history will predict what they're going to be doing next, right? <laughs> <clears throat> After 1907, eight states, always eight, right? established deposit insurance funds. Due to the lax regulation of banks and the widespread inability of banks to branch branch small local unit banks, often with poor financial health, they grew in numbers, especially in the western and southern states. In 1921, there were about 31,000 banks in the United States. The Federal Reserve Act initially included a provision for nationwide deposit insurance but it was removed from the bill okay so the fdic was created in 1933 funny all this stuff happened around 1933 right it just went to they took us off the gold all that gold lies and all that just like they use the bible to back up all their history right During the Great Depression, there was widespread panic again over the American banking system due to the fears over the strength of many banks. More than one-third of all U.S. banks were closed by bank runs. And that was a lot of banks, okay? Bank runs, sudden demands by large numbers of customers to withdraw all their funds at almost the same time, brought down many bank companies as depositors attempted to withdraw more money than the bank had available in cash, and you also will want to look into they've changed the regulations for banks over time, and actually they keep changing them, meaning that the banks keep lower and lower amounts of cash on hand, right so if you think this was bad back then, well, buckle up kids um so the banks through laws and I, I may have it here, I don't remember, but they have they keep rigging the system and so banks only have just like pension systems they only have to hold a certain amount of money they just basically just steal the rest I don't know how to explain it they basically just steal the rest of the money okay okay where was I here Um, they said written and publicly announced reassurances and tightened regulations by the government failed to assuage depositors fears so yeah people you know I would think with all this information we'd be a lot smarter than we are right now and I don't want to get into a rampage right now. I'm very disappointed how easily these dickless wonders got us. Just very disappointed. And whoever stood up, whoever stood up. Who stood up when that queen died? What two people shouted out? People should have been raging in the streets over all the murdered robbery those people had done, but oh, I got to back away from that. Okay. FDR himself was dubious about insuring bank deposits, saying, We do not wish to make the U.S. government liable for the mistakes and errors of individual banks and put a premium on unsound banking in the future. But public support was overwhelming in favor, and the number of bank failures dropped to near zero. Well, I'm confused. Anyway, so... On June the 16th, 1933, this is very important, you notice that date, 1933, (laughs) they are just freaks, okay, absolute freaks, Roosevelt signed the 1933 Bank Act into law, creating the FDIC. The source of all of it is where it happens, I am just obsessed with how this stuff gets started. I don't consider myself obsessed with how these things get started. I consider that decent research, right? So 1933, Banking Act. That's what you're looking for. Created the FDIC, the initial plan set by Congress in 1934 was to insure deposits up to $2,500, which would be about 50 grand in today's numbers. Adopting a more generous long-term plan after six months. So yeah, uh, <laughs> Yeah, okay. The 1933 Banking Act established the FDIC as a temporary government corporation. <laughs> Gave the FDIC, and, and was, it, was it 1933 that they declared all of us enemies of the state under, I, I forget, I did a show about it. In the title it says Enemies of the State. So if you're an enemy of the state and um, were under their slave system, like with the real slaves in the 14th Amendment, None of this really. <laughs> well, I think they're letting us sue, sue people and do certain things right now, but technically they'll be able to go back and draw up these old laws. Okay, so um, so the 1933 Banking Act gave the FDIC authority to provide deposit insurance to banks. And 1933 it was not that long ago. 20 years before I was born, kids. 20 years, okay? Okay, gave the FDIC authority to provide deposit insurance to banks. Gave the FDIC the authority to regulate and supervise state non-member banks. Funded the FDIC with loans in the form of stock contributions from the Treasury and the Federal Reserve Banks. (laughs) Extended federal oversight on all commercial banks for the first time. 1933, just let that sink in, okay? And I'm not going to get into all of this, but they made separate commercial and investment banking. So they separated commercial from investment, and that was under the Glass-Steagall Act, okay? It also prohibited banks from paying interest on checking accounts. It allowed national banks to branch, branch statewide if allowed by state law. The Banking Act of 1935, so we went from the Banking Act of 1933, just keep these numbers straight, kids, (laughs) made the FDIC a permanent agency of the government and provided permanent deposit insurance maintained at the $5,000 level. Okay. And what were some of the historical limits? Okay, 1935, they paid up to $2,500 dollars. And I think I said that would have been about fifty thousand dollars in today's money, okay? And then blah 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 blah. They get in two thousand eight. It goes up to two hundred and fifty. It goes from nineteen eighty a hundred thousand to two thousand eight two hundred and fifty thousand. Congress approved a temporary increase for a hundred thousand to in effect, October 3rd, 2008, through December. Anyway, so then they did the Dodd-Frank, and this stuff is just starting to make me a little bit dizzy. So, all of these things <laughs> were to protect us, okay? Okay. Federal deposit insurance, I was looking at, uh, did any of, have any of them had major trouble, Okay. Federal deposit insurance received its first large-scale test since the Great Depression in the late 1980s and early 1990s with the savings and loan crisis, which also affected commercial banks and savings banks. The Federal Savings and Loan Insurance Corporation had been created to insure deposits held by savings and loan institutions. Because of a, a bunch of events, much of the SNL industry was insolvent. And many large banks were in trouble as well. FSLIC reserves were insufficient to pay off the depositors of all the failed thrifts and fell into insolvency. So they absolved that and they came up with something else. This is what takes me time sometimes to get my mind around all these changes. But the changes are pretty good because most people don't spend the time to really understand where they flip the change, right? So, changing names like from ARPA to DARPA and all that kind of stuff these people do. Um, So, anyways, they had the trouble with these savings and loans, okay, in the 80s (laughs) because they didn't have enough funding. See, where have I heard this before? I don't know. The unions don't fund their things. The banks don't fund their things. Um, Hmm. It's like a pretty big pattern to me, but... uh, so, um, they had this Crisis Reform Act of 1989 and the Federal Deposit Corporation Improvement Act of 1991, and so now federally charged chartered thrifts are now regulated by the Office of the Controller, yeah, and the state chartered thrifts by the FDIC. So, what that means, I don't know. Uh Final combined total for all direct and indirect losses of this stuff was estimated at 152.9 billion of this amount. U S taxpayers losses amounted to about 123.8 billion, which was 81% of the total cost. Huh? Yeah. Uh, well, I think I see some pretty clear patterns here. Um, and let me read this little story I was getting to here with this, why they changed things in 2008. 2008 was our last crisis, okay, so let's talk about that now. In 2008, 25 U.S. banks became insolvent. Now remember, 2008, we're in 2022, not that long ago, okay, two thousand twenty five U.S. banks became insolvent and were closed by the respective chartering authorities. The largest bank failure in terms of dollar value occurred on September 26, 2008, when Washington Mutual, with $307 billion in assets, experienced, I think I talked about this a little bit earlier, so I'm not going to get too, uh, but what they did, um, the FDIC used their exceptional authority to arrange a non-competitive acquisition of the bank, Wachovia. that's a, Washington Mutual Bank it then established the temporary liquidity guarantee because see all these things are going to come back to haunt us any day here and not right because they did this then so it's already waiting for the lawyers to pick it up from here right so the temporary liquidity guarantee which guarantee deposits and unsecured debt instruments used for day to day payments I don't know um Anyway, so lots of banks. At the end of the year, um, in 2009, Guaranteed Bank in Texas became insolvent and was taken over. Um, and was taken over by this BBVA Compass. It was a U.S. division of a bank out of Argentina, and the second largest bank in Spain. This was the first foreign company to buy a failed bank during the financial crisis. So, Bank in Texas fails, Guarantee Bank in Texas fails, August 21, 2009. Who takes it over? (laughs) Well, Argentina and Spain. (laughs) This was the first foreign company to buy a failed bank during the financial crisis. In addition, the FDIC agreed to share losses with them of about eleven, bill- uh, 11 billion of guarantees loans. This transaction alone cost the FDIC deposit insurance fund three billion dollars. So, I, I, why the FDIC of these people from Argentina and Spain decide to split the losses? Okay. At the end of the year, a total of 140 banks had become insolvent. And that was the year of 2009. Apparently, although most of the failures were resolved through merger or acquisition, the FDIC's insurance fund was exhausted by late 2009. To continue meeting its obligations, it demanded three years of advanced premiums from its members and operated the fund with a negative net balance okay as boring as this is it's important to know for right now because trust me they're gonna they're gonna be dragging all these tricks out of the bag okay in 2010 a new division within the FDIC the Office of Complex Financial Institutions was created to focus on the expanded responsibilities of the of the FDIC by the Dodd-Frank Act for the assessment of risk in the largest systematically important financial system, a total of 157 banks, and I'm still back here at 2010, with approximately 92 billion in total assets, failed during that year. The Deposit Insurance Fund returned to a positive net balance starting the, I don't know, The then they had the Dodd-Frank Act. And, um, the Dodd-Frank Act required the FDIC to increase to the 1.35% of total insured deposits. Um, and they saw no bank failures. Okay, well, what they did was they when these banks got in trouble, and this is just my version, okay, look for yourself. I think what happened, the banks got in trouble, then they set up these other agencies to do mortgages and stuff rolling forward. This is more than my brain can handle at this minute. <laughs> it always looks like they're coming in with a fix, right? But the fix is always a trap. So I will guarantee you right now, I'll put it on recording, all of these laws that I just told you about, Dodd-Frank, all these laws are going to come home to roost any day now. Just guessing here, okay? Just guessing. Okay, between, I was looking into the money, between 18, no, between, my eyes start between 1989 and 2006, there were two separate FDIC funds, the Bank Insurance Fund and the Savings Association Fund. The latter was established after the savings loan crisis, that one I was talking about for Washington in the 1980s. The existence of two separate funds for the same purpose led to the banks attempting to shift from one fund to another, depending on the benefits they could provide. In 1990, these premiums were at one point five times higher than the other premiums. Several banks attempted to qualify the other ones, but some merging with institutions qualified. You know, it's all a big shifting game act, right? magic and money magic and money okay Alan Greenspan was a critical of the system saying we are in effect attempting to use government to enforce two different prices for the same item namely government mandated imports uh, I don't know um, the FDIC maintains the insurance fund by assessing a premium on both member on member institutions so FDIC gets their money by these institutions right The amount each institution is assessed is based both on the balance of insured deposits as as well as on the risk the institution poses to the fund. When the FDIC assumes control of a failed institution, it uses the insurance fund to pay depositors their insurance balance. So all along they're collecting money from their banks who are part of their own family. And that's used for this fund, right? This results in a loss to the fund that must be replenished from the assets of the failed bank or from members' bank premiums. In the event that the FDIC exhausts the insurance fund and cannot meet obligations with advances from member banks, it has a statutory $100 billion line of credit from the federal... So they have this line of credit in case all this other stuff fails but if i remember correctly only a few minutes ago i was talking about they don't even have that much liquidity right they have all these debts but they can get a hundred billion line of credit but what does that mean when they have um and this is the part that really is insane okay um so what does that mean if they can get another $100 billion of credit from the treasury okay when they owe trillions right okay and to receive the benefit member banks must follow certain liquidity and reserve requirements banks are classified in five groups according to the risk based capital ratio well capitalized is 10% or over adequate capitalized 8% well I don't know um <laughs> Um, I don't have the brains to go back through all these laws, but what they basically did through all Dodd-Frank and all these twists and turns, was they just actually made it so banks have to have less liquidity, right? So they have less that they're holding on to. Upon a determination that a bank is insolvent, its chartering authority, either a state banking department or the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency closes it. And appoints the FDIC as a receiver. Okay, so a bank goes out, the U.S. Office of the Comptroller of the Currency closes it, and then they appoint the FDIC as a receiver. In its role as a receiver, the FDIC is tasked with protecting the depositors and maximizing the recoveries for the creditors of the failed institution. The FDIC as receiver is functionally and legally separate from the FDIC acting as its corporate role as deposit insurance. So, they get to receive the money and also insure the money, right? Courts have long recognized that these dual and separate capacities have distinct rights, duties, and obligations. Well, but they're all run by the same people, The goal of receiverships are to market the assets of a failed institution, liquidate them, and distribute the proceeds to the institution's creditors. I think that bank holders would be considered creditors, but I don't don't know that. If you have a lot of money in the bank, I would certainly get on that and figure out, are you considered a creditor when a bank fails? Okay, That would be a key thing I'd be looking for. Not giving up financial advice. (laughs) Yeah, YouTube's an ad revenue money because uh, lost because of all this promoting from crypto money they were getting. You know, some of those people advertising this crypto stuff were getting a million dollars or two, a couple couple million dollars a year for robbing everybody else. It's just it's a sad state. It's a sad state. The FDIC as receiver succeeds to the rights powers. And privileges of the institutions and its stockholders, officers, and directors. It may collect all obligations and money due to the institution, preserve or liquidate its assets and properties, and perform other functions of the institution consistent with its appointment. It also has the power to merge a failed institution with another insured depository institution and to transfer its assets and liability to without the consent or approval of any other agency, court, or party with contractual rights. It may form a new institution such as a bridge bank to take over the assets and liabilities of the financial institution or it may sell or pledge the assets to the failed institutions. Yeah, so quite a powerful position if you ask me. And I asked this basic question because I was kind of, uh, well, I'm still confused. So, uh, Because there's something else you need to watch for, and that is, uh, let's say, because all the crooks are out in full force now, let's say that somebody gives you a bad check and you deposit it to your bank. Well, let me tell you this, just in simplicity form. If you mess with a bank, you're going to prison, okay? If a bank messes with you, they're moving up the wealth chain, right? So, um, and this person said, I deposited several checks, money orders that were fraudulent and did not clear. The bank took the money from my checking account and then froze and or closed my account. Can it do this? Yes, depending on the circumstances, you may be held responsible for the entire amount of the fraudulent check or money order that you cashed at the bank or deposit into your account. Generally, banks may close accounts, as explained, in your deposit account agreement. You need to understand all these agreements, kids. They got you tied up. Understand what you're doing. So that your agreement may include things about closing your account without notice or low usage or inactivity. They're closing a lot of accounts now, okay? As a bank may freeze transactions in the process of closing your account. If your bank gave you credit, If your bank gave you credit for a check or money order that is found to be fraudulent, the bank can reverse the funds from your account. As the payee of the fraudulent item, you must pursue the maker if you wish to seek restitution, so it's going to be up to you. Your bank's rules concerning these issues are provided in the deposit account agreement, so look at that, and also do a search for bail-ins. So let me tell you a story about Detroit. And you'll also notice Detroit is a black community, right? No, these people aren't racist, right? Government incompetence caused 100,000 people in the city of Detroit to lose their homes. The city recently admitted that it had overtaxed homes by over $600 million between 2010 and 2016, resulting in thousands of foreclosures. So there's some law in the state of Michigan that property cannot be assessed at over 50% of its market value, but they just changed that on their own, okay? And here's the thing. If they take it, good luck getting it back, okay? The Michigan Constitution states that no property can be assessed, and but the city assessed 55 to 85% of the property in violation of that law. This assessment led to 100,000 Detroiters losing their homes when they should not have. Okay. Um, so, um, yeah, they just lost their homes. Just out and out lost it, okay? Um, and w- what the deal is now is that because they they took $600 million worth of stuff and they spent it, they don't have money to pay all those people back. So um, and then I got I got a wrap up here I'm worn out I'm sure you're worn out too but um, I have a couple of good quotes if you want to look just do a search for top quotes about gold <laughs> there's a lot of them And <laughs> my brain I left the quotes about gold until this morning I, I don't know I, I'm not that engaged right now I, I think I think I've said all I need to say about money and I can move on to other things because now I'm really fascinated with this antichrist business. <laughs> <laughs> and how it all ties to Babylon. Um yeah, so let me let me let me slug through the rest of this. And thank you for joining me in slugging through this. But really, they're gonna crush us with money, okay? That's that's gonna be the thing. So and I hope my coffee cup isn't banging on the microphone. Um this microphone really picks up thing. All the cat has to do is cry at the outside of the door and it picks up. And this is a quote by Ann Rand. Ann Rand on, on, and ran. <laughs> Whenever destroyers appear upon men, they start by destroying money. For money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Destroyers seize gold and leave to its owners a counterfeit pile of paper. This kills all objective standards and delivers men into the arbitrary power of an arbitrary sense of values. Gold was an objective value, an equivalent of wealth produced. Paper is a mortgage on wealth that does not exist, backed by a gun aimed at those who are expected to produce it. Paper is a check drawn by legal looters upon an account which is not theirs, upon the virtue of the victims. Watch for the day when it bounces, marked account overdrawn. And this was, this was, uh, (laughs) this one one was from um, Hitler. (laughs) Hitler. also known as Walt Disney Um, we don't even know what Hitler looks like we're looking at Walt Disney and we think he's Hitler this is how, how screwed up we are right? all I have to do is get that one foot in front of the other and get through this show Okay, this is a quote from Hitler gold is not necessary I have no interest in gold we will build a solid state without an ounce of gold behind it Anyone who sells above the set price, let him be marched off to a concentration camp. That's the bastion of money. So, uh, well, I don't know what to tell you. I think that uh, it is something else, and I hope that you have uh, enjoyed the show. Thank you very much for joining me, and uh, let's get on to this next thing. I have a song picked out for you that I think you'll enjoy. I'm still trying to get that um, K raw, Syrah song out of my head. <laughs> okay, here we go. Thanks for joining me. Be safe out there. Goodbye for now.
1: I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Pay needs said. And still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad.
2: Before I forget and close off here, um, while I was listening to this song, I remembered um, I did talk about the railroads. Um, The railroads are looking to go on strike here, okay, and I hope that people will stand in solidarity. So, what's going to happen is this: first, they have to get all those trains in, okay. So what'll happen is they're looking at December the eighth. So what'll happen is because of the dangerous chemicals on all those trains and If you want to know more, Rachel Maddow, who's one of their agents, but she did a really good piece on the railroads in this country. Look up Rachel Maddow railroad crisis in this country, and it is something else, the dangerous things they ship on these trains. Um, They just load up these trains, and what they're trying to do now is only have one person (laughs) driving that train. So, yeah, so I guess if that one person happens to have a heart attack or something, that train will (coughs) derail in some poor town. But anyway, so, yeah, what's going to happen is that, there's going to be a decision. This is from what I understand right now, as of today. And today's it, November the 28th. It looks like it's going to happen on December the 8th, okay? And the workers are not getting time off. They're getting screwed by the unions. And so I have to repeat this. If unions were representing the workers, how did it get so bad, right? Okay, So, um, so... They're being denied a lot, and I hope that people will stand in solidarity. I believe people will probably raise up and blame the workers, okay? And I hope that you're not going to be one of those people because um, they deserve this. So, what's going to happen? A week before, they have to bring all those trains back to the station, right? Because they can't leave all those trains out if they're going to be striking. So, watch for trains moving back to stations. So a week before they actually go on strike, they're going to call in all the trains. So just be on your toes, kids. Just be on your toes. And keep preparing. Just keep preparing. There's going to be a lot of hungry people out there. You know, you can get bags of rice now still cheap. You can get bags of beans. You can get bags of all kinds of stuff. I'm sitting on a lot of stuff that I will never, ever eat. But somebody's going to need it. Do your best. That's all we can do. I'm not really sad, it's just that sometimes it gets to me, that's all, that's all, sometimes it gets to me, because I was just dealing so much this week with these different things, and I'm not going to apologize, I'm just commenting, okay, I'm not, I'm not criticizing myself for showing emotions, maybe we should have showed a lot more emotions, maybe none of it should have happened, okay, but we have to deal with the cards we have in our hands right now, so buckle up. Take care as much as you can for those that have just been too buried by this fucking country to get prepared. So, just remember, solidarity will win the day. And love is better than hate. Be safe out there.